when the darkness closes in, will we bless his name? When we see trials and tribulations come, may he find us faithful. Some of you are sitting in here right now and the darkness is closing over you. There are some of you in here right now who have tasted the pain or the sting of a loved one dying. You know sickness and you know the pains of this life of just trying to make it to the next day. Will we choose to bless his name? May he give us the strength to do so. And we need him and we need one another to continue to preach that message over and over to ourselves. Jesus is our salvation. This morning, open up to Matthew 22, if you will. We're going to be talking about the parable of the wedding feast. I love this parable. And I hope that this morning, as we go through this parable and as we study it, that you'd be encouraged to take this home, to ponder it, and what, what God's intentions are for you, the saints, and what he is showing us through the mystery of this glorious unfolding plan that is taking place through you, the church. In this parable that we're studying, we're continuing on the series of seeing how Jesus is revealing the glory of God both in his judgment and in his mercy. And how can these two things be compatible, right? How can these two things go together? God's judgment and his mercy. We oftentimes love the thought of mercy. We're not so keen or that's not too pleasant to think about the aspect of God's judgment. But as we've come to see in the series that it's actually God's judgment that paves the way for mercy. You can't have mercy without having judgment. And so this morning, let's read through Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Follow along as I read, and then we'll begin to dive into the text. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, 
how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In order for us to get a good understanding of the context here of this passage, let's take just a brief moment to to understand who's talking and who's he talking to, where are they at, and how does this fit in with our understanding of the scriptures and redemptive history? Well, first of all, we know it's Jesus who is speaking here. He is the one who is actually teaching right now this parable, and he's teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. It's probably his last few days alive before he goes to the cross. He's in the last week in Jerusalem. It's more than probable it was only a day or two before this that Jesus has his triumphal entry, where the people were crying out, Hosanna. It's probable that it's only a day or two before this that Jesus goes into that very same temple to flip over the tables of the money changers and to drive out the animals and those who are selling He came into the temple at that point to show his zeal for God and for his house. This is a house of prayer, but you've made it a a den of thieves. But here, a couple of days later, or maybe a day later, Jesus enters the temple, but this time he's not coming to drive out the money changers. This time, Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. As our Lord and Savior often did, he loved teaching. If you look through the Gospels, Jesus would oftentimes travel with his disciples and they would go to synagogue or to town and Jesus would sit down and begin to teach the crowds. And so Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. This isn't just, this isn't just a light moment in history. This has got immense implications that the king of glory The prince has entered into the house of God in Jerusalem, the capital, and he is teaching the word of God. And who better to teach the word of God than the word of God become flesh? And we're going to find that in the middle of chapter 21, chapter previous to this text, that the religious rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees, came to Jesus as he was teaching in the temple And they came before Jesus and said, by what authority are you teaching these things? In our day, in our modern vernacular, they would say, who do you think you are? You don't have a degree. You don't have our education. You're not associated with one of the four religious sects of Jerusalem. Who do you think you are teaching these people here in the temple? You don't belong. You kind of hear that. And Jesus begins to share parables. Now, it's really interesting. As Jesus is sharing these parables, he is teaching the people. But as the religious rulers and the leaders are right there standing by listening to the parables as well, it says in the last two verses of chapter 21 that the religious rulers began to perceive that he was talking about them. How crafty our Lord is. He's teaching the people, and as he's directing his attention to them, the Pharisees begin to understand, he means us. He's talking about us. And they're trying to figure out, how are we going to get this guy? How can we sit and listen to him? Maybe he'll use the wrong word. Maybe he'll say something that, that we can challenge him on and bring him down. 
can begin to sense that their blood is boiling. And in chapter 22, our passage today, the passage of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus is again teaching the crowds, but his attention and his focus is on those religious rulers, those Pharisees and those scribes, that really the focal point of this passage is aimed at them. But we get to benefit from it. So let's benefit from it this morning. First of all, our first point is simply this, the, the, the king's first invitation, keeping it pretty simple. Verses 1 through 7, we have this parable that Jesus is beginning with a king who is preparing a wedding feast for his son. And the king wants guests to come and to celebrate with the king. This is a joyous moment for the king. He has his son is going to be married and he wants others to come in. Enjoy the celebration with me. Enjoy my joy that I'm having. Share this moment and you too will be filled and satisfied. So the king sends his servants out to a list. There is a guest list and this is the guests, this is the people that the servants go to. But it tells us that they would not come. A, it, that's a slap in the face to a king who is asking people to come at no cost to them to enjoy his celebration, to enjoy this moment that's special to him. But they ignored it. But the king is patient. The king is kind. He's merciful. So he gathers his servants again for a second time and says, listen, tell them all the benefits they have in coming. I have killed the fattened calf. I've, I've got the table is ready. There's going to be a magnificent meal. All they have to do is come. All they have to do is come and they can enjoy this celebration with me. Go out again. Go out again and ask them to come. But this time the rejection hurts even more. Some go back to their businesses, others to their farms and their homes. But then it tells us that some seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. What? How? How, how is the king going to respond to this? He is wanting a relationship with people that have absolutely no desire for him. As a matter of fact, not only are they rejecting him, but they're killing his servants. Well, of course, verse 7 makes sense. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Whew. Judgment. What was a hand of kindness and grace extended out has so quickly turned into the wrath of the king coming upon them in judgment because they rejected him and did not desire him. Now, it is more than probable that the Jewish people listening to this parable would have thought, man, wait a minute. This sounds awfully familiar to our history. This parable and the parable of the tenants right before it both are interesting parables because they bring in this element of having a little bit of familiarity with the Jewish history and what happened to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And then as Jesus continues the parable, it brings in an astounding what's going to happen as an outcome. Okay, so follow along as we look at this, but naturally the Jew would have thought, 
Well, that sounds an awful lot like the God, Jehovah, in the Old Testament, sending his prophets to Israel. Time and time again, he was sending his prophets to tell the people of Israel, repent, turn from your sins, seek the Lord. Don't continue in your idolatrous ways, but remember the God of the covenant at Sinai who saved you from Egypt. He pulled you away from those Egyptian taskmasters and he brought you to the land flowing with milk and honey. Turn from your evil ways. But we know what happened to those prophets. Many of us do. If we've read the Old Testament, we know what happens to Jeremiah and Isaiah. They were seized. They were mocked. They were beaten. And they were killed because the people did not heed the warnings or desire a relationship with the God of heaven. Instead, they turned to their own things, their own gods, the gods of the surrounding nations around them. This is what Nehemiah 9, 26 through 27. By the way, there are a few really good passages of scripture that if you want to get a summary of the history of Israel, Nehemiah 9 is one of them. Psalm 104 and 105 is another really good one to turn to, to get a really quick synopsis in about a chapter or two of what happened in Old Testament Israel. And Nehemiah 26 and 27, it says, nevertheless, they, speaking of Israel, were disobedient and rebelled against you, speaking of the Lord, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn from them back to you, to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Notice here that it's the Lord that's doing the act. We're going to see that again in verse 30 here. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you, and that's God, gave them into the hand of the peoples of their lands. This is very important because if you understand God and his divine purposes, he is bringing judgment to them because they would not listen to him. He's not a God that accidentally turned away for a moment and looked back at Israel and they were defeated. He's not a God that was not paying full attention to them. He was the God that brought the judgment to them. We also see in 2 Chronicles 36, 17, Therefore he, God, brought up against them, Judah, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He, God, gave them all into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Once again, God is the one who is fully in charge here and fully in control and bringing Nebuchadnezzar in this mighty empire of the Chaldeans to Jerusalem to demonstrate his judgment on them because they were not heeding the word of God through the prophets. Instead, they took the prophets, they seized them, they beat them, they mocked them, and they killed them. The parable begins to make sense. But this is speaking of Israel. This is speaking of the Old Testament and what they had done. Two dates would have stood out in the Jewish mind. And the dates are 720 BC, the destruction of Israel by Assyria, and 587 BC, the destruction of Judah by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. You have the northern tribes falling in 720 BC when Sennacherib comes up and invades and destroys them. And then in 587 BC, 133 years later, Judah is going to be sieged by Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar is going to surround that poor town, that poor city for two years. And they're going to suffer immense hunger and hardship. Eventually, there's a breach in the walls. King Zedekiah is killed, or his, his sons are killed before him. He's taken off to Babylon. And that's the date where Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple and the majority of the city is burned by the hand of God. The king was furious that they did not heed his invitation or his warning. Go back here to 2 Chronicles 36, 19. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Okay, so we're following along here that this parable has just a lot of resemblance to the Israelite history of what happened. And now we move to the king's second invitation, seeing that those who were previously invited were not worthy. That's what it says. Matthew 22, 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is amazing because what happens now is you see that God has ushered in a radical new understanding about the kingdom and who is invited to it. It's not a kingdom whose guests are limited to a nation or to a group of people, but it is a kingdom that is universal, that has guests that come from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation. They are all invited to this kingdom to partake in the celebration of the king who just wants guests to come and enjoy this moment with him, the wedding feast of his son. This is how the parable would be interpreted, to go out to the main roads, to, to get anyone you can. It says they went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. Anyone, whether it was business traders on the roads or whether it was Roman legions or guards or any foreigners passing through the land, it didn't matter. You get them and you tell them. You tell them they're invited. Come to the celebration of the wedding feast of the king's son. You are invited. Well, this is going to be difficult, a difficult piece for the Jewish people and especially the re religious rulers to swallow because down to the core, the Jewish people were taught, it was down in their understanding that they were the special people of God and that God's mercy was reserved for them, not for the outside nations, now, not for the outside people groups. Listen, many of you in here this morning are in discipleship groups and you're studying the book of Jonah. Jonah's understanding was the Ninevites don't deserve God's mercy. That bad people group isn't worthy of the invitation. And he knew, he knew God would be merciful. Yet, he didn't want to tell the Ninevites. The reality is, is for the Jewish people an understanding that that mercy, that invitation was reserved for them. But Jesus speaks of this parable as if, no, it's for all. Go tell anyone you come across. Tell them, Gentile or Jew alike, that you are invited to this wedding feast. 
What a radical new understanding. I, I, this, this is what the apostles call a mystery. We'll get to that in a second. But it's really not new, is it, that Gentiles come to faith, right? I mean, let's take a moment to do a brief theology of the Old Testament and just look at characters. Do you remember Abram? Do you remember what his, Abram's name was changed to? Abraham. Why, why did that happen? What's the significance of Abraham? He would be the father of nations. That the spiritual faith, that the spiritual seed would pass from Abraham to be the father of kings who would be blessed by him. Nations would be blessed by Abraham being the father of nations through the spiritual seed that would come. This reality goes forward as we look at Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. Nothing Jewish about her. She shouldn't belong in the family of the Jews, yet she has been grafted in as Romans uses the term, and Paul uses the terms in Romans 9 11. She is now a part of the family of God because her faith in concealing the two spies was something that God saw, and God worked through her to save her. How about Ruth, the Moabite, brought into the family of God? How about Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy, who by faith dipped himself seven times into the Jordan River and was cleansed? And there's a lot of speculation regarding Nebuchadnezzar, who towards the end of his life seems to truly repent and seems to give God the glory. Yes, even Nebuchadnezzar, that instrument that God had used to bring destruction on Jerusalem. No, no, the plan was always there that the nations would be blessed by the invitation. There's been Gentiles who have been grafted in over centuries and millennia. But what, the is, but what the Jews are now seeing is that it's a new revelation. It's a new concept to them that the Jews are to see the Gentiles as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers in the covenant promises with God. And this is what we see. Oops, I pressed the wrong button. This is what we see in Paul's writing in Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You guys remember in Acts when Peter is called to go to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile? And when Peter starts to share the gospel, Cornelius and his household they, they get saved, and the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they begin to have gifts of the Spirit. Peter is so confused, he goes back to James and John in Jerusalem. He says, the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews did at Pentecost. This is amazing. What do we do about this? And they were astonished, but they said, then indeed, then indeed the gospel, the invitation is for the Gentiles as well. And eventually, Paul is sent out to be a minister of that gospel, specifically targeting the Gentiles. All have been invited. Brothers and sisters, you and I are here because you have been invited. You and I get to partake in the marriage feast and the celebration of God. How did this happen? Because the second invitation goes out because the first invitation was rejected. And God's judgment on the first group brings out mercy for me and you. You understand that, right? Judgment on the former group brings mercy to us. And we behold the mercy of God and say, how is this possible? I'm not a Jew. 
I, I, I haven't sought the Lord any day in my life. I, I've, been, I've been someone who has pursued my own ways, but God came and he saved me and he transformed my life and now I have the seed of Christ in me. I'm now a child of God and the seed of Abraham now abides in me too. Now, with that reality, we recognize we are invited to the wedding feast of the Son, and the King delights in me and you. Will you respond to this invitation this morning? Will you respond to him and seek him? Well, this turns now to the third point, the King's inspection, verses 11 through 14. When the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. How many of you have read through this passage and thought, what? This, this part doesn't fit. It seems shocking. It seems out of place. And I think the parable would just be much better if we just kind of erased that part, you know? But we can't do that. What do we do with this part, this random guy in this place? How did he get in? The king asked that. How did you get in here? How did he get in there? And number two, what's with the garments? How do we, how do we interpret this and understand this? Well, as foreign as this part of the passage might seem to you and me, this is actually the emphasis and the point of the entire parable. Because Jesus' audience, the Jews are hearing him teach, but he is specifically focusing in on the religious rulers and the Pharisees. So how does this part really challenge them? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in application. How does it challenge me and you this morning? Okay, so let's read this here one more time. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many who are called, for many are called, but few are chosen. I think what's being taught here is an understanding that the king is perfect and precise in all that he desires of his guests. There's an understanding here that we are invited to come to this wedding feast. But come to the wedding feast the way the king has asked you to come. Don't come to the wedding feast in your own efforts. Don't approach this king the way you think is right. But approach this king the way he has called you to. The king isn't haphazard or dysfunctional. He isn't expecting his guests to come willy-nilly in whatever way they please. He's the king. He's to be reverenced, and his rules are to be obeyed. He's purposeful and deliberate in his wishes. I, I don't know if this is helpful to think about, but for me anyways, I don't want a king that's fluffy. I don't want a fluffy king that says, hey, it's all right. Come any way you want. Come any way you think is right. Yeah, I've got these guidelines, but you know, we can kind of bend the rules a little bit. Do what you think is right to come in before me. That sounds like a fluffy king. That doesn't sound like a king that's the king of kings and the lord of lords, 
the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. That sounds like a king who's not set in his ways. The idea here is that this king is set in his ways, and he is expecting his guests to obey him the way he has designed. The problem is, is our culture has a problem with this right now, doesn't it? Our culture, we live in a world that's postmodern and postmodernism that, hey, your truth is your truth. And as long as we can agree to disagree, we should just be together. doesn't matter what you think or what you worship. Do as you see fit is right for you. And that's, that's truth for you. And I'll do what I think is right for me. And that's truth for me. The problem is, is that this king really doesn't care what you think is truth. He is truth. He is the beginning and the end. He's the one that sets the guidelines. He's the one that makes the record straight. You better listen to him. And if you're going to approach this king on the day of the wedding feast, you better come to him the way he has asked you to come to him. And he is not just a tyrant or an angry ruler that doesn't love his guests. No, he has invited you to come to celebrate with him. But because he is just that, a just and good and true and pure and honest king. He is to be reverenced as such. So much can be talked about here with, with this idea that it sounds burdensome. It sounds, sounds like he just wants us to submit to him. I don't want to worship a God that, that just wants to rule over us. Let me tell you something very clear here. Obeying God the way he has called us to, is life. Anything outside of that is death. Sure, the pleasures and desires of this world, while they might seem good for a short while, they will lead you to death. And you will die in utter desperation and separated from the king of kings forever. Don't listen to your feelings don't listen to your flesh. Don't listen to your heart. But speak truth to yourself. The truth of God's word. This king loves me. He's invited me. And he wants me to come. And I will do so the way he has designed. And I will find life. I would a hundred times rather be a servant of the high king of heaven under his rules than to be shackled and a slave to my own desires and sin and darkness. You're going to be a servant one way or the other. Don't think there is freedom. You will be a servant to either God or you will be a servant to your flesh and to sin. Don't think there's a third option. There's not. And you will be made aware of that when you stand before his presence and, might I add, if we stand before his presence, there's not going to be any of this, hey God, let me tell you, let me tell you what I've done and how well I've been. Hey God, let me tell you why I think I'm, I'm a moral person. I've, uh, I've kept the new moons and the Sabbath and the feasts. I have all the regulations, God. I've, I think I've done pretty well. Did you catch what happened to the guy who doesn't have the garments that are in accordance to the wedding feast? Did you, did you hear what he said to the king? What does he say? Nothing. That's you and me before the holy of holies. That's you and me when we're bowed down before the judgment seat. We have nothing to say. When we behold his greatness and his glory, all we can do 
is cry out to Jesus. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will come to you and he will raise you up before the king and he will say, stand. This one has been bought by my blood. This one is clean. He's done nothing wrong. Look at the robe of righteousness that is placed upon him. This is our God. Don't think that you're going to have an opportunity to speak before God and give an excuse for why you've done what you've done. Jesus is the only way to be pardoned. Jesus. So we have here the king's inspection. And the king sees this guy without the wedding feast garments on. And what are we to make of this? He casts him out into outer darkness. There's a, a brief familiarity here with Matthew 7, 21. I apologize, I don't have it on the slides, but Matthew 7, 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, I have to be honest, that passage has scared me in a number of times. Do you guys feel that? Do you feel the weight of that? Oh, Lord. I never want to hear my Lord say that. I never want to hear the king say that to me. How? How can I come to him and be received and accepted? You know the way. Through the blood of Jesus who died on the cross. That's the only way. If you approach the king in your own righteousness, in your own works, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing, trusting in their morality, trusting in the law, you will be turned away. But if by faith, brothers and sisters, you look at Jesus and recognize that day, that victorious day when he died on the cross, my sinful, ugly, odious, leprous, decaying garment was put on him. And he died with it and he left it in the grave. But what was given to me in that place was a beautiful robe of righteousness. I no longer have that old garment upon me, but Jesus has made me new, and I am found in him. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, is that you? Are you clothed? in the righteousness and the salvation of the Lord? And you might think, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know, David, if I am? Because I never want to hear the words, turn away and depart from me. I never want to hear that. How will I know that I have Christ's righteous robe? By believing that Jesus died in your place, that he rose again, and that he is everything and all that you need in this life desires of the flesh, the possessions of this world, the power and influential things we can do in this life, leave it all behind. Run after God and seek Jesus 
the rest of your life. If that's starting today for some of you, let it start today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to our God that he may have compassion on him and to the Lord for he will abundantly pardon. For my ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts, saith the Lord. But as far as the heavens are above your soul are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. God has made a way for you and me. And that way is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. So are you going to the wedding feast? Are you going to accept that invitation of the Father that wants to feast with you? He loves you. He's going to fill your cup and it's going to overflow. I have this picture of us being at the table as it says in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. That it's like we're going, we're going to drink and eat, but he's going to say, David, you need more. I, I was like, keep drinking. He keeps filling it up because he wants us to know his love and his grace for us. Wow, what a king. What a God we serve. I want a king like that. I want a king like that. And if he is calling me to enter his presence with the righteous robes of Christ by putting my faith in him, then I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes to trust in him and to believe because I desire to be there. And I desire a relationship with this king as he desires a relationship with me. Philippians 3, 8, 9, for his sake. This is Paul speaking. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, like the Pharisees were so quick to do, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen to what it says here. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not the righteousness from me, not the righteousness from the law, not the righteousness from you, but the righteousness from God. It has to be his robe that's placed upon you. It has to be. And this leads us to the king's perfect plan. Oh, this is awesome. This is so cool. In this parable, you see, if you will, a sifting of the guests comes down to a select few. You understand what I'm saying? There was, there was these invitations going out. Some were rejected, others received, and even after those who received and accepted the invitation have come, there still are others who are not wearing the garment of the wedding feast. It's as if, as if we're looking at Gideon and God talking to Gideon about this large army, we've got to sift it down to the 300 men. Listen, I want to display my glory through a chosen few. I'm going to show everybody how powerful I am, God says. It's not going to be because of your army, your knowledge, your know-how, your tactics that's going to win. It's because I'm with you. Listen, God is sifting the sands, and he is going to come to a certain select few that he loves. And it is precisely this. The judgment that comes upon those who are rejected paves the way for the mercy for us to receive it. That we have been forgiven, that we've been pardoned in such grace, such mercy is beautiful to us because we recognize this is his doing. This is his power. See how God's perfect justice is sifting out the many 
And this reveals his glorious mercy to the loving, the few. There's a couple of things in here. We know the king has a son. He mentions the son, right? Verse 2, preparing a wedding feast for my son. So there's a prince. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the parable. But by direct correlation, we would assume then there has to be a bride. Where is she in the passage? Do we see it? Well, this is what's just amazing as we read the scriptures. That God, in his plan, is preparing the wedding feast for his son. And in doing so, he is inviting. He is inviting all to come. Those who would receive the invitation and come dressed in the righteous robes of Christ. You know where I'm going with this. And they, the honored guests, coming to the marriage feast, are shown that they themselves are the bride, the church of God. That Christ is the groom, and his people that he's raising up, his church, the beloved bride, has come and has approached, and God is the one who comes to see the guests. It says that right there in verse 11. The king came in to look at the guests. It was the king's design to see those who have come, to look at them, to behold them, to examine them, to inspect them. And if they are wearing the righteous robe of Christ, they enter into the kingdom and they are the bride of Christ. The saints who have gone before us, the saints who are yet to come, and you, the saints who are here in our midst now, beloved guests of the king. It was always the king's plan. It's not as if God wanted to pour out wrath on dirty sinners and Jesus somehow steps in the way and says, no, God, don't do that. I'm going to help them out. No, that's, that's not how scripture tells us redemption plan works. Redemption plan is that for God so loved the world that he gave. God's the one in control here in loving the guests. He gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But beloved, what's the problem? This is the judgment. The people love the darkness rather than the life because their works were evil. And they did not come into the light lest their works should be exposed. For whoever does wicked things does not come into the light. But whoever does what is true comes into the light that his works may be seen that they've been clearly carried out in God. I urge you this morning to seek the face of the God of Jacob and accepting his invitation. I urge you to not approach this God, this king, in your own power or in your own efforts. That this story, this parable, would have been extremely controversial to the, the religious leaders who were hearing it because Jesus was pointing out they needed something other than righteousness from the law. They needed to believe it was the religious leaders themselves who are going to end up binding Jesus, beating him, and then killing him on the cross. They will repeat the very same heinous crime that their fathers had committed back in the Old Testament with the previous prophets. They still reject him. Don't let that be you and me. If you have been grafted in don't become prideful, but recognize it as a gift of grace 
that God's judgment on them has brought mercy to us and we can praise him for this. That we have received the righteous robes of Christ and that he has taken our sin and our filth away from us. The hymn, His Robes for Mine, I just want to read these two verses in closing. His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, because in, in my place he died. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I, as though he, embraced I love this last part. And welcomed home. Beloved, seek the face of the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham right now. And in a few moments, I will close this in prayer. Let us go before him. Our closing benediction here comes from Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.